0: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here at New Books in East European Studies, with my guest today, travel writer Mark Baker. Mark, thanks for joining us today.
1: Oh, my pleasure.
0: So, uh, we'll get right down to business a little bit about Mark and his bio. Mark Baker's book is called Chas Premien Time of Changes. Published by Albatross Books in 2021, he is an American journalist and travel writer. In the 1980s, he lived in Vienna and reported on the former Eastern Bloc for Business International and The Economist Group. In 1991, he moved to Prague, where he worked as an editor for the Prague Post and co founded the Globe Bookstore and Coffee House. He's written 30 travel guidebooks for publishers like Lonely Planet and Photos on countries in Central and Eastern Europe, including the Czech Republic. This book we'll talk about today, Time of Changes, Chas Promien, is his first book of historical nonfiction. And for more about Mark, you can find information at his website, www.markbakerprog.com. So I have a lot of questions about uh the stories that you tell as a travel writer and a journalist, but I'd like to begin with my first question, and that's about your motivation. So what motivated you to write this book, Chas Premien?
1: You know, um I've the book the the time frame of the book, as you mentioned in the introduction, concerns the 1980s and the 1990s, the period of transformation. this The centerpiece of the book is actually 1989. Half the book is in the 80s when eastern the Eastern Bloc countries were under communist government. And then the latter half of the book is in those years immediately after the uh, anti-communist revolutions of 1989, the Velvet Revolution, the fall of the Berlin Wall, etc. For years, I've had a stack of notes and photos, as well as a lot of memories. Some of the posts that I've written to my blog, and you know, you 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 kind of wonder what you're ultimately going to do with all of those memories. You know, I realized uh, that it was a kind of special time to be in Eastern Europe, Central Europe, um, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do, like to process those memories in some way or to try to understand that time. I, you know, in a, in a different way or in a more um, cohesive way than, you know, than you actually do as you're going through it the very first time. Um, so I think part of the motivation was to somehow come to terms with that period, you know, um, to try to p- process, if that's the right word, uh, all that material that I had at that time and to try to recover, you know, some of the stories that would have been lost or at least lost to me if I didn't at some point try to write them down as a book. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I am curious throughout, um, many of the stories and, and we'll talk about some of your characters, including your self-construction, um, how you ended up first of all in, in communist Czechoslovakia. So how, how did, how did you aspire to become a journalist and, and, what is your background? This is, I think, going to be very curious for a lot of our um, listeners who've read your work.
1: Yeah, um, you know, I, I, you know, journalists will always tell you that they never had any intention of becoming a journalist. It's something that you just kind of fall into when everything else mm-hmm. is kind of taken away, right? Um, you know, there are, I guess, there are some people that have this lifelong desire to be a journalist, but I really wasn't one of them. Um, I, I was motivated. Uh, I, I tell the story, in fact, I began the, the book with a story that I took when I was an exchange student or a, a junior year abroad student might be a better way to put it, in Luxembourg, where my university had a, a kind of arrangement, you know, where you would spend a junior year there in Luxembourg. And um, this was in the early 1980s. In 1982, um, I decided uh, with some friends of mine to take a spring break break trip uh, to Eastern Europe across the Iron Curtain. And in fact, we wanted to go for our spring break. We wanted to go to the Black Sea coast in Bulgaria. So we rented a car in Luxembourg and we drove it across the continent, uh, going through Germany, of course, and Austria, and then in Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, Yugoslavia, then back out the door through Austria and then back to Luxembourg. Um, And I think that's the very first time it's going to sound a little bit naive on my part, but it's the very first time that I realized this Very strange and unnatural division in Europe between East and West. And Mm -hmm. somehow that got something in me. You know, like what is this weird? thing called the Eastern Bloc or as, you know, or what is this weird thing about of Western Europe? I don't know what is the weirder one, but I mean, you know, like, w- what is it? This one continent, two systems, completely different. And, um, and that's how I kind of got my start in, in Eastern Europe. So um, when I got back to my university, which was Miami University in, in Ohio, the one in Ohio, um, you know, I graduated the year after I got back and then I enrolled at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. Mm -hmm. um and uh, there they had a uh, they had a good program in the 1980s on eastern europe i think they still have a good program uh but at the time it was a kind of the eastern european institute was kind of i don't know like a think tank for for cranks and dissidents from central europe to kind of hang around and i got into that milieu a little bit and Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. and that that basically sent me you know this direction to central europe after i graduated from Columbia.
0: Yeah, I, I'm so interested, and and you actually um, use the description of of dissidents and and cranks, I guess, as well as academics. It's funny, you know, um, being around Columbia and, and the Harriman Institute, seeing people who who come in and out. Um, I'm interested in your passing through a lot of different places, and I wonder if if you can begin by introducing your book and your collection of of stories. So. How how did you begin um, with the characters? Obviously, many of these are, are people that you met—Czechs and Slovaks and so forth—to um, construct this series of, of tales or micro stories. Um, uh, yeah. what, what what is the content?
1: Yeah, what is the construct almost? You know, what is the what is the conceit in a certain sense? I suppose. Um, the idea to actually write this book right here, you know, as I said in the beginning, that it was always kind of in the back of my mind, you know, percolating, it's doing, and I had all these papers that I would go through and wonder what I was going to do with. But it was really a Czech editor here in Brno at Albatross who asked me if I wanted to write the book. This was uh, before the coronavirus lockdown, before COVID, right before, actually, a couple months before. Um, and he gave me um, he gave me pretty open. gave me a pretty open door to do what I wanted with this book. And uh, at the beginning, I really didn't know how I wanted to to build out my characters or to construct my narrative, um, to build out my chapters. And then it was only as I started to write that I realized that the best way to approach this period would be, as I said, to divide it in half, to make 1989 the midway point, and then to focus each chapter on a particular year of my life and of this part of the world and to integrate some of my own personal impressions and stories with a larger picture of what was going on in the region at the time and to see if I couldn't build some interesting uh, connection that would keep my readers interested and, uh, and might you know allow me to understand the period a little bit better. You know, So mm-hmm. it I was kind of like I was making up this, um, this uh, organizational construction on the fly as I was writing. I didn't actually finish with the idea of the 12 chapters, the introduction, mm-hmm. and the epilogue until uh, a few months before I was actually writing the book.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I will ask you about some of the people in, in the book as you go through this um, chronology year by year. I wonder if I might start at the end, um, asking you a little bit about the Globe Bookstore. So this is ultimately your chapter 12, but could you introduce for our audience what it was and how you and um, your co-founders ultimately in the expat community that was there in
1: 1993 started it? Right. Right. Okay. Yes, as you're right. That's the very last chapter before the epilogue of the book. And it ends in the years 1993 and 1994. Uh, I ended the book, the, this book, in 1994, because that was the year that I actually left Prague with no intention of coming back. You know, I, I was done. I'd been in Prague, where I'd been in Eastern Central Europe for eight years at that point, And I was ready to head back. Um, about the globe. I thought that that was a very appropriate way to end the time of transformation, because for me, of course, it marks an end point, but of course, but I think it also marked a kind of end point of the transformation process. Um, the globe bookstore and coffee house was part of that expat invasion, you know, Mm -hmm. if you will, that came, who came to Prague starting around 1991, I would say 1992. Um, and, uh, I and four other partners, so there were five of us, uh, decided what Prague needed was um, another English language bookstore, but one that would also do used books as well, and that one that could function as a cultural space between the English and American authors who wanted to come to Prague and uh, the people, the Americans, the expats, the the English-speaking expats, and and other expats who were living here, and also Czechs um, who were you know, curious about uh, English. We're learning English. Who knew English uh, could interact somehow? So that's what that was. It's essentially a bookstore and a coffee house, but in a sense, it's a it's a metaphor. You know, even the mm. word globe, even the even the title of the of the bookstore itself is a metaphor. It was kind of like the place where we mm. all interact somehow. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And and it's in um, what area of. Prague, is it Holesovice where yes. it, it was started? What, what was the decision um, there? I, I mean, how did you decide on on that particular area of, of Prague, as you say, given the other bookstores that, that were there? What's
1: the story right. behind that? Yeah, there were a couple of other English language bookstores It would be wrong for me to say The Globe was the first. It certainly was not, but um, it, it, it was, I don't know, you know, it sounds self-serving to, for me to say this, but I think it was the most enduring Or the most important bookstore at the time, just for its cultural reasoning. Um, Now, to to understand why we chose an outlying district of Prague, it's not in the Prague that the tourists know so well, like Old Town Square or Charles Mm. Bridge or something like that, um, because for one thing, it was almost impossible to rent space back then at that point, because there wasn't there wasn't a functioning rental market. There was a small privatization process going on a lot of properties were tied up in court and restitution and nobody had a place to rent so we found a place finally where the family who owned the building had recently received the right to rent it out to other people but the but the downside was that this was nowhere near the center this was about i don't Mm -hmm. i would say about two miles north of the old town square well connected by public transportation but you know in our minds like how how are our customers ever going to find us out here um, anyway, we didn't care. Um, you know, we had the <laughs> property, it was affordable rent. Uh, it had two big rooms, one for a bookstore, one for a coffee house. The family, uh, turned out not to be so great I- in the end, but, um, but, uh, they did have the leasing rights to rent the space to us and they signed a five-year lease and that was important to us. So that's how basically how it started in Holoshevica.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so interesting to me, um, to see and to hear you reiterate that story because um, you work for so long as, as a business journalist. And I see this as at that really, you know, kind of shakedown moment for lack of a better word. It's it's while privatization is is happening. And it, that leads me to my next question. I wanted to ask you again, like sort of tracing back to the 80s, 1982, 1983, 1984, the year of Milan Kundera and so forth. If you could introduce some of your characters um, because on, on the one hand, I see you've got an intellectual community, there's a third space, there's this coffee house, and yet you're almost writing, if I can put words in your mouth, a, a love letter or a, a love story about, you know, a lot of the people who met at the, at the um, bookstore and then a lot of your own friends who were there with you as you were coming of age. So I guess my question for you would be, if you could tell us a little bit about your travel companions and, and how you tell that story.
1: Oh, that's very interesting. That's that's the very first time I've ever gotten that question in, in an inter- interview. Um, you know, obviously, um, you know, I, I was not alone on these trips to Central and Eastern Europe and at different stages in my life. You know, I had different love interests, I had different friends. Um, you know I had different people who, who went with me along on, on these journeys. So it's funny when you write a book, you realize that the persons you're writing about are also going to read the book at some point you know And so you really mm-hmm. want to be fair to that person and you want to be fair to that person's contribution to the book. So you know I didn't want to write that I had done this and I had done that without also bringing in the people I had done those things with you know, just just to be fair, you know, just to be honest with what was really going on. Um, the book starts out with my best friends from Miami University days in Luxembourg. Uh, that would be Doug and Jerry and Sheila. Um, and uh, Doug was my best friend at the time. Jerry was a very, very nice guy, conservative Catholic guy. And when I tell that story about how we somehow mistakenly bumbled into a bathhouse in Budapest. He was absolutely (laughs) shocked, you know, beyond belief that this was ever going to come back to haunt him someday, you know, when he wanted to run for the governor of Wisconsin or something like that. And 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 then Sheila during that period Became my girlfriend, you know, uh, during the course of that trip. So, um, you know, that's a kind of a special memory for me. I didn't want to really bring that into the book too much because I don't want to get caught up in love stories, you know. I mean, but you know, that's that was the background of that of that trip. You know, in a sense, it really was a, a coming of age, you know, trip for me in a lot of ways. You know, getting to know Sheila better and and getting to know Eastern Europe uh, better. Uh, and then each chapter brings in a new character somehow, you know, because yeah. at that stage in your life when you're in college or you're going to grad school or something like that, people come and go out of your life. You don't realize it's never, it's not always going to be this way, but people come and go out of your life each year, you know, as you meet new friends or find a new girlfriend or or whatever. Um, so... And then the second story is um, is after I go to Colombia, and it's actually the first story of me coming to Prague, and uh, I told that's I put that story in the book because you know it's this book is for Czech readers, and this is the very first time that I actually came to their country to the Czech to Czechoslovakia, but also because it was a crazy story, you know. I mean, I I I, uh, I was traveling at the time with my roommate at Colombia who had, was in Poland to study Polish, so I went we went up to Krakow. First, And then we took the train down here to Prague and uh, and then we got lost. We got separated from each other (laughs) through through a hotel mix up. And it was a crazy three days of searching around Prague, looking for him and wondering what had happened to him. And at the very same time, I had met a girl in Poland while I was there who was coincidentally also in Prague during that weekend. So it was a kind of magical moment for me. You know, I mean, I was uh, Mm -hmm. falling in love with this Polish woman. And at the same time, I was worried beyond belief of what had happened to my own roommate. So, um, you know, I won't go through every chapter about that. But just to give you an idea about how, you know, how my side characters or how my main characters are so important to my narrative, because, you know, they're, they're the juice, you know that I that I'm exactly that I'm, that I'm pushing off of during these chapters.
0: Yeah, I, and and your chapter two, I think it's a remarkable sort of moment in time. Um, it's called the case of the missing roommate in English. I, I wonder how it how it translates and relates in in Czech in the original. Um, you're talking about this first visit, which I, I find really interesting as you go from Luxembourg. Um, to Prague, to Czechoslovakia, a little bit later. Um, and I guess my impression, you know, reading it, because I, I read it in, in English in this case, is as you revisit this 1984, what, what are your general ways of making 1984 relatable? And, and I would say this, you know, both for a Czech audience and for an American audience or an expat audience, how do you, how do you make the stories as a travel writer relatable? What's your hook?
1: You know, um, I think it goes a little bit back to your previous question. The hook is obviously the relationships that I had with the people in those chapters, because those are eternal, you know, I mean, what, uh, what grad student hasn't gone, you know, abroad and, you know, um, found a, a love interest or something like that. It's such a, it's such a classic story somehow. And, um, and that story about missing a roommate, um, you know, that also is something that anyone can relate to. You know that you know you, you you know you 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 go through three days of your life when your roommate has just disappeared and has vanished in, in a city. So it's the fear that you feel during that thing that makes that so, I think, relatable to anyone at any time. Um, you know, and then. But but I think you're, the the question also that you just asked me kind of like kind of relates to something that I had to do uh, for the book c- because the book is being published in twenty twenty one you know of course you know almost I hate to say it but almost forty years after I lost my roommate in Prague that first time around <laughs> or at least <laughs> right. not quite forty years let's not exaggerate but certainly almost forty years since I took that road trip to Bulgaria um, so um, I had to try to bring in descriptive elements. Uh, to try to give people just a sense of what the, the 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 objective reality on the ground was. So to try to say that the ladies at the travel agency were were wearing drab olive uniform color or something like that, just to give people mental image to grasp onto. So. Um, you know, I didn't realize how much descriptive elements, I had, how much descriptive writing, I would really have to bring into the book. But I realized that if I wanted to make these times real to modern readers, I would have to really try to, you know, paint pictures, you know, of, of the way things were back then.
0: Mm-hmm. I, and I, I see you, Mark, moving through genres. Um, I think there's a there's a lot of mystery writing, uh, and I wonder if you, if you could tell some of these stories. Um, Tell us the story of Arnold. Who was he, and what did you find about um, find out about Arnold later? Uh, Who was so, he in your trip to Czechoslovakia?
1: I, I really like your your the the the, the remark about the genres because. The book was recently reviewed here by a magazine in, in Prague called Reflex. And the writer reviewed the book and she said, the first thing I had to get my arms around was what genre of book was this really? Is it a travel book? Is it a biography? Is it a history book? Is it a detective story, you know, somehow? So it's kind of like all of those things, depending on the chapter and sometimes even within the chapter. Um, yeah, so Arnold, Arnold is a main character of chapter three. Um, Arnold came into my life when I moved to Vienna and I started working for Business International. Business International, for your listeners, um, was a small publishing outfit in Vienna and, and other places around the world that would write um, that would write very much how-to uh, books for businessmen about how to do business in in challenging parts of the world. In the, our Vienna office, covered Central and Eastern Europe, Yugoslavia, and the Soviet Union. So that was you know people would subscribe to our publications companies would like uh wrigley's or philip morris or you know people that make whiskey or perfume or tires Uh, and they would subscribe to our publications to learn how that they could sell into these very challenging markets and of course there was commerce going on between east and west back then uh, involving western companies but the key for western companies was how do i get into these crazy markets so that's what we tried to help them do it was a consulting business and a journalistic business arnold was one of our stringers each mm. one of us, we were based in Vienna. We were all Anglophones, pretty much an even mix between Americans and English or Scottish. And, um, and uh, we all used people in country. So in Poland, in Bulgaria, in Romania, I don't, I don't think we had anybody in Romania when I was there, but in Czechoslovakia um, and Yugoslavia to help us to make our hotel reservations, to set up our meetings, and to suggest interesting topics to cover, like, you know, you know, maybe there's going to be more consumer goods imports coming in or something like that in our stringers were supposed to help tip us off to those things so that when we did our reporting trips, Mm -hmm. we had a bit of an advantage. And Arnold was one of these people. Um, You know, Arnold was hired by Business International to be my stringer in Czechoslovakia. He He was from Prague, though he was born in western bohemia he lived in prague when i was reporting there and it was as i said it was his job he would make my hotel reservation he would set up all my meetings with foreign trade people with czech companies with government officials and he would uh, drive me around to all my meetings in his car and then of course you know my czech was terrible and he would help translate he would help translate uh, you know for me there the thing that i didn't realize is that arnold had a second job and arnold's second job was to report on me, everything that I did, everything that I said, every person I met, you know, just basically everything. And, um, you know, at the time, I maybe I had some vague idea that this was happening or, you know, I don't know, but I was naive, you know, as I say in the book, painfully naive in places. And uh, I didn't really think about that very much. Um, I only learned about Arnold's second job, let's say, uh, many, many years later in the 2010s. I was in Prague. I was Googling some old names of people I used to know back in the day. I keyed in Arnold's name into Google. I hit return, and nothing came up, nothing. And I went down and down and down in the search results, and I finally came on a very small link to one report by the Prague uh, Military History Institute here in Prague about Arnold. And the title was Arnold, um, um, collaborator, journalist, and collaborator with the secret police and my blood went cold and then i read the report and i learned all about arnold's second life so that chapter chapter 3 is a story of is really two stories is me uh talking about some funny stories that arnold and i did together about uh about how obviously they must have suspected that i was also a spy if they had put arnold on me as a spy let's say and then the second half of the chapter the second part of the chapter it's not really a half but is trying to understand that relationship now 30 years later what Arnold's motivations might have been and borrowing from that report to try to present Arnold you know I say in the beginning that this chapter is as much my story as it is his and uh and I was really interested in trying to to you know, to trying to explore some of the motivation on the other side, and try to deal with my own emo- emotions. Of course, when I found out that he was a spy, I was angry, as angry at my company, mm. angry at him, of course, and angry at me, you know, for not realizing it sooner and, and doing something about it when I could. So that's chapter three, and that's Arnold.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm so interested in how you narrate that because I, I think you know a lot of the current writing. Back to the Lives of Others, of course, which is a film that I show to my students. But, you know, Catherine verdery her book, My Life is a Spy, Sheila Fitzpatrick, who's written a book about this as well, the story of, of surveillance, um, and how you go back to look at your life, almost like an autopsy of your life in this period from the 80s through the early 90s. It's, it's so intriguing to me. Um, and, and I really hope people will read. Uh, this chapter, um, both you know as a narrative as you do as a travel writer and and perhaps maybe as a primary source where you're coming back to that self-reflection. I want to move maybe out of, of Prague a little bit and ask you where else you visited? I know you've been everywhere in in Central and Eastern Europe and southeastern Europe too, but what particular places? attracted you. And and Brno is is a good example within Czechoslovakia or Czech Republic. But
1: where else did you go and why? Um, I I think the very first place that I was really fascinated with and still am to a certain degree is Vienna. You know, the city that I was living in the 1980s from 1986 to, you know, through the end of the decade, um, I found it to be as as uh, difficult to comprehend what was really going on as any city in the eastern Bloc back then and I, I i wonder if it's you know because of the Habsburg legacy or you know how deeply textured that culture is the viennese culture is after the centuries anyway i always enjoy going back there and uh, I, I still don't have a handle on that city completely um, outside of the czech republic within eastern europe uh, my favorite place to go, um, you, you know, if you follow my writing and travel writing at all, is uh, Romania. Um, I write about a trip to Romania that I took with my girlfriend at the time in 1990, in June 1990. And um, and it also pops up in the very beginning of the book because we, we traveled on our way to Bulgaria. At the beginning, we traveled through Romania, of course, to get there. And uh, that city, that country and the city of Bucharest uh, has... I, has really fascinated me. I, you know, I have a hard time pinpointing exactly why, but I think it's all the contradictions in the society, uh, the legacy of the Tchaikovsky regime and, and the deep and lasting impact that, that, uh, that, that legacy has had on the country. I think it, till this day, um, you know, that's, that's one. And then maybe, you know, the other place is Poland. Um, you know, I've written a lot about Poland. I, 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 uh, you know, I really, I really like Krakow and um, and Warsaw, both of them. And um, you know, there's just something about Poland and solidarity that uh, that you know that attracted me to Eastern Europe right from the start. So that's another one of my favorites, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. I mean, I'll just say, kind of personally, you know, my father was in Poland in 1984, actually, right during the period you seem to have been there. Um, he was on a teacher exchange, and, and I just remember poring over his notes and, and looking at his study of Poland and how he visited the um, Katowice and, and saw the um, minors and things like this and the official trips that, that he was on. Um, it, it, was, it was something for me, at least, that, that motivated me to go to Poland when I was finally there on my grad um, student trip from 2002 to 2005. So I, I find it fascinating how you reflect backwards. Um, and for Romania too, I wonder if you might say a word about um, this whole issue of, of moral leadership that you bring up. Uh, you know, you, you um Ian Iliescu in, in the book, and you talk about the two Václavs um, and you make an argument, I think, which is really compelling about Romania 1989, 1990 um, how, how do you establish this juxtaposition, let's say, between the moral leadership that that is there uh, with Havel and, and what's um, there in the transition, if you can call it that, after the Ceaușescu's in, in
1: 1989? Right. Um, the year 1990 presented a bit of a challenge for me as a writer of this book, um, I had experiences, of course, in 1990. I was still in Vienna at the time, technically, still working for Business International, but already contemplating a move to Prague, which I did in 91. Um, I came on this to this basic conclusion that 1990 is underrated in terms of history. Um, You know, it was perhaps equally as important as 1989 because the big questions of what was to come after 89 had not yet been fully answered. You know, by big questions, I mean what would happen to Germany, for instance, divided Germany, or what would happen ultimately to the Soviet Union, which emerged from 1989 still basically intact. Um, and there were just a lot of other questions, big geopolitical questions, that had to be that had to fall right if 1989 was to be a success, or say a total success. Um, so I decided to devote two chapters to 1990, and one would focus on a trip to Prague that I took in February of that year, which I called the two Václavs. And I talk about Vaclav Havel and I talk about Václav Klaus. And it was clear to me that whether you liked Havel or not, and you know, we all did, or whether you liked Klaus or not, and we all did back then, and not many people do now, um, it was clear that Czechoslovakia was in good hands. You know, they had a moral mm-hmm. leader like Václav Havel, and they had an economic visionary, you know, or one that appeared to be Uh, in Václav Klaus, and very determined to take Czechoslovakia west. Romania, which is the second chapter that I write about in 1990, the second chapter focuses on a trip that I took in June of 1990 with my girlfriend at the time to Bucharest. And uh, we were not following events in in Bucharest or Romania very carefully uh, back then, but we just assumed because Basically, the questions were—you know, nineteen ninety, was going well for Czechoslovakia, uh, was going reasonably well for Poland. We just assumed that things must be going reasonably well for Romania as well. Uh, and, but we, but we timed our visit for what Romanians called the Maneria. It was the weekend that mm, uh, that right. the leader of the country, Iliescu, called in miners uh, onto the streets in Bucharest to try to disrupt and break up student democracy pro-democracy protesters that were protesting against his rule um, so i thought that that set up a really interesting case study of two countries in the eastern bloc two countries that you know more or less had this you know the same but similar uh, experiences in the eastern bloc or at least broadly similar experiences in the eastern bloc but two which perhaps had wildly divergent uh, at least in the in the in the short term widely divergent outcomes and that was uh, and that was the reason for, for writing those two writing those two chapters on 1990.
0: I'm mm-hmm. I'm interested in in asking you and, and this is a, I guess I hope it's not too probing but I, I wonder if you could say maybe as a journalist what you think you got right um, and and of course this is a, a very subjective and it's part of the reflection and, and the blogging that, that you continued to do later with Radio Free Europe but. Um, you know, I, there, because there's so much blame that goes around and, and with all the illustration campaigns, were there things you, you feel like you got right about 1989? Were there things that you felt like you got wrong about 1990 In, in looking at these two countries and, and maybe other countries within, the UK?
1: you know, it's a, it's a kind of contentious point to my book because people look back on 1989 and they say, of course, you know, that those revolutions were coming. They were inevitable. You know, the Eastern Bloc was falling behind. Um, You know, that digital and internet technology was just around the corner. If it hadn't fallen in 89, it would have fallen in 94 or 96. The situation was untenable. It was unsustainable. But what I really wanted to do was, with this book was to take readers back before 1989 and ask them, could you have really predicted what was going to happen if it was also mm. inevitable now? Yeah, and I see that. I think the, the answer is absolutely no way. And I fell into that trap myself. Um, you know, we we blithely went into 1989 thinking that the division of of Europe into Eastern and Western halves was as normal as the phases of the moon. It never even struck us that this was unusual somehow. You know, it just seems so part of the everyday life you know like do fish see water you know did we see the division (laughs) did we see the division of eastern of eastern and western europe as anything unusual and so that blinkered thinking led us into doubting that 1989 could have ever happened you know and uh so when you ask me if i got anything wrong you know i I write about an episode in the book where i traveled to prague of all places in november of 1989 not november 17th when the velvet revolution started but a few weeks before i think i arrived in prague on november 1st or october 31st of that year and my job was to ask ordinary checks on the street whether they thought the revolutions that were that whether they thought that any change political change was imminent or coming and i'll tell you what stephen to the last man <laughs> and the last woman that i interviewed everyone said it can't happen here there's just you know. no way that it's going to happen here. Now, Czechs don't remember it that way. And even yeah, when I was writing it, point. I started, I started yeah. doubting myself, you know, like, did it, was it really like that? Or is that just a kind of a memory that crept in? You know how your memory changes over the years and gets a little bit warped? But that's very clear in my mind. People were like, nah. And, and go back to that period, say the end of October, beginning of November, we had massive demonstrations in Berlin just across the border from Prague, you know, and Czechs could see those demonstrations. They weren't able to be hidden from them. They knew what was going on in Berlin and still with those massive, you know, demonstrations were going on over there. People still didn't believe that it would happen here in Prague. Mm
0: -hmm. And so
1: I, I tried to write about that. Of course, you know, I was caught up as I told you just a little bit before then that, uh, that I was caught up in the same kind of thinking in that same kind of habitual thinking that this, that this won't happen. And, that led me probably to my worst mistake in journalism which i'll just tell you about just in a second just for a second in in an article that i wrote for our flagship publication called business eastern europe i think the article was published on november 13th i wrote the headline something like czech czechs and slovaks say it can't happen here so you know this was just four days before the velvet revolution got started so you might say that what's my biggest miss as a journalist.
0: <laughs> well, you are not the only one, Mark. And, Thank you. and uh, Thank you. you know, in French journalists reflecting about Le Pen or American journalists reflecting about Trump and those things that that go on in hindsight which is really 2020. So Right, like forgive yourself, <laughs> 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 and just cast it into the waste <laughs> basket, as, as yeah. you know journalists will tend to do when they have yeah. a, throw, a throwaway piece that they hope oh yeah reads. No. Very true. Um, I, I, I'd like you know just to continue about sort of if we can move it up to nineteen ninety three. If you could reflect a little bit about the expat community, I, I know in my own mind I have this stereotype of of bad poetry being written in coffee shops. And right. there are, of course, some really good novels and, and people who come to Prague, as you say, like Allen Ginsberg, it's a very funny story that you tell, or, or Gary Steingard. Um, but maybe share your own impressions with the demographics and, and the cultural mores of this community. What, what was it actually like for you in this period, 91, 92, 92?
1: You know, this, this chapter was a very difficult one for me to write because, you know, so much has come out of that, like so much legend has come out of that or lore has come out of that, 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 um, you know, that on one side that it was a great party, that uh, expats took over lots of buildings, it was just a lot of fun, there were so many drugs, and if you remember it, then you really weren't there. That kind of the way that people used to look back on the 60s and kind of a uh, a calcified nostalgic way and then on the other side are the 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 expat haters the self-loathers who say oh Mm -hmm. it was nothing but horrible poetry and it was a terrible scene it was very artificial blah 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 so what i wanted to do was just throw all of that out the window all of it both sides and try to look at that at what happened in a kind of fresh way what was that all about because i'll tell you what right now young czechs and slovaks they don't know anything about that That time, you know, (laughs) they really don't. (laughs) My editor. My editor at Albatross, who's younger, who's younger than I am, uh, he said uh, when I when I turned in that chapter and he read it and he, he came back and he said, "Mark, we're going to make history with this book. You know, nobody's ever told this story." And I was like, "I don't think we're going to make history with that with that particular chapter because you know it's well known." But what I wanted to do was to recast it, and I found a way to recast it by pairing it with the chapter that comes before it. It's the chapter where I'm working at the Prague Post as the business editor. And um, I had come up to Prague in 1991. Uh, I didn't have anything to do. I would left my job at Business International, and I was casting around for a job. And I was lucky enough to run into the people who started the Prague Post, and they learned about my experience in Vienna, and they offered me the job as the business editor of the Prague Post. I thought, great, I'm going to do that. Um, And I thought when I first took the job that this was going to just be a fun job. You know, I'm going to be reporting on a country that's just emerging as a new democracy from these decades of totalitarianism. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a feel-good story all the way, blah, blah, blah. And we ran into a train wreck. You know, we ran into a train wreck. The country was having a difficult time coming out of the, you know, the the the, the political Unions that had led the Velvet Revolution were dissolving into these very, very bitter ideological right. splits. Um, the country was debating on what to do about lustration, about whether to forbid people who had worked in the former regime from holding influential positions of power in the new society. Um, they were They were debating on what to do economically. You know, how do we privatize our companies? You know, what do we do with our economies? How do we prevent unemployment and inflation? And then finally, what do we do with Czechoslovakia? You know, is this country viable as a, as, a, as, a, as a country? Slovaks started to slowly want their own state. Czechs started to, you know, were resisting. And it soon became very clear that there was not going to be a meeting of the minds between Czechs and Slovaks on this. So instead of a feel-good story, I came. we came up with a, a really a feel-bad story, which was mm. the split of the country in uh, at the end of 1992 and the beginning of 1993. So, you know, don't worry. I'm getting to your expat story. But it comes – oh, yeah. go ahead.
0: No, no, but tell, tell, tell me about that. I'm, I'm interested in the communities that, that you are weaving in and out of.
1: You're right. So, um, so I found a way to look at the expats in a kind of different way that I, and I was, you know, and and and, and I think it's, and I think there's merit to this approach. Um, the country in ni- at the end of 1992 was in a hard spot, a spot. It was breaking up. There were a lot of things to be unanswered, but at the same time. All of a sudden, Havel and Prague and Czechoslovakia became very popular among young people all around the world, not just in the United States or in Britain, but Canada, in Europe, in Australia, everywhere. And and, and these people, these new people, young people, they didn't care at all about the political difficulties of the country or the economic difficulties of the country. They were really excited about Prague, about Havel. About uh, uh, about the beauty of the city, about the possibility of the future, and it gave a kind of energy, an impulse to the city. You know, an image mm, uh, of being right. cool. You know, of being popular, of being uh, desirable. And I think the city still draws on that image to some degree, even now, even today. You know, Prague is cool. You know, yeah. to, to some to some degree. Right. And um, and I, I think and so that's that's where that. Ex, that's where I kind of start the expat story, you know, uh, uh, where the country is in a in a not in a bad spot, but in a, in a difficult spot, in a gut wrenching spot. You know, revolutions have consequences, and a lot of those consequences are completely unintended. And I think an unintended consequence was the breakup of the country, um, and uh, and and all of a sudden, in ninety three and ninety four, rolls around, and there's thousands of. People on the streets, young people from all around the world starting businesses, starting bars, intermingling with Czechs and Slovaks of that age who have their own clubs. They're starting newspapers, magazines, literary reviews, bookstores in our case, newspapers like the Prague Post or our rival prognosis. Uh, and there were a couple of other, uh, newspapers, uh, at, at this time, Prague actually supported four English language newspapers. If you that's can believe
0: that, 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 that's a remarkable part of your story too. Yeah. I, I, I would say, you know, to
1: Mark, because you have
0: many of the editors who are very, you know, sort of like legendary and charismatic figures like Alan Levy, you know, who, who died in 2004 included. And I love that part. Um, um of your story, because it's often, you know, the story of these, these, um, editors who have a dream or bookstore owners who have a dream and, and they go there and, and sometimes their, their dreams fizzle and sometimes they last, but, um, that's, that's the part, you know, I hope our listeners realize as they read your, your book, that there's not a timelessness to this, that, that actually these things might rise and fall and, and ebb and
1: you know, we we didn't, at the time, we did not realize that these were not timeless. You know, we thought that, the, I mean, we thought that these were timeless, rather, you know, to say. Um, I don't think we realized that by the end of the 90s, the beginning of the 2000s, that, uh, you know, that this wave would have more or less been over, fizzled out, and that, you know, this country would be just a normal, <laughs> medium-sized EU country, you know, somehow. Um, you know, it didn't start out that way, uh, and I, it's a really good thing to know. I wish I would have realized how special that was at the time and how potentially short lived it was
0: mm-hmm. what would you say and, and this is really sort of a question for you um, a very brief one I, I hope about the profession that, that your career freelancing as, as a journalist would be possible now let's say to someone who studies at, at columbia or studies at, at miami university or, or wherever learns a little bit of, of check, goes, you know, and, and hopes to make it there. It, would there be any word or words of advice that you would give to someone who's kind of
1: dreaming of this as a
0: possibility?
1: You know, there are still dreamers, you know, who come to Prague. I run into them, you know, here and there. Um, uh, but there aren't those self-made outlets, Anymore. You know, I don't think people are coming here. I could be wrong. You know, I'm, I'm older now. I'm not in touch with the with, what people are coming in when they write coming right off from the plane. But my sense is that, um, that that infrastructure, you know, doesn't exist to the extent that it did. You know, I don't see people coming here and starting literary magazines you know, or bookstores, mm-hmm. something like that. Um,
0: Mark, since we're um, winding down a little bit with our time now, I-, I wonder if you might suggest to our listeners here at New Books Network, um, some of the writers and, and books, um, perhaps that, uh, that they might, might read or people to follow?
1: Well, uh, yeah, the first thing I want to do is to draw your listeners to uh, um, attention to the to the series of the 1980s that was edited by Philip Roth, it was originally published by Penguin Books in the United States. It was called Writers from the Other Europe, and it's a survey edited by Philip Roth with uh, you know introductions by some weighty intellects you know from the day, uh, but included writers from not just Czechoslovakia but Poland, uh, Yugoslavia and Hungary, and perhaps a couple of other writers from other countries. But it was really an encapsulation of the best. Writing available in English from those times, and the books are marvelous. They still hold up to this day. Um, a, you know, maybe one other, uh, a couple of other recommendations. As a travel writer, uh, you know, I'm really, I'm really drawn to these old long-form travel books by the great. English writers or the great European writers from the past, and one of my favorite writers is Patrick Lee Fermor, who wrote that trilogy uh, when from the nineteen thirties mm. when he was a young man. Uh, it begins in Holland and he moves across Central and Eastern Europe and he ends up in Istanbul. The second part of the second of that, the second book of the trilogy, is called Between the Woods and the Water. It begins where Slovakia meets Hungary. It goes through Budapest and then it moves into, at the time was part of Hungary, Transylvania, or, or rather recently part of Romania, but still very dominated culturally by Hungary. And then all the way down to the Danube river near the current Serbian border. And it's just a beautiful evocation of, of, um, uh, of life in the 1930s in that part of the world. It's fantastic. Mm,
0: I, I haven't read that. that th- and thank you. Thank you for those suggestions. Um, Mark, you're too, you're too modest to admit it, but your guidebook is, is still read today and, and one can find it, um, in, in shops. I, I know actually I have a copy of it. So this is the one from nine, I think it's 91. 91. So this is the, yeah, yeah this is the, the seminal text that mm-hmm. you became so, so known for. And I started collecting these lonely planet guides, uh, russia ukraine when i was taking my first trips as a grad student i'm a little bit younger than you are but i was going in 99 in 2000 right and after 9 11 then wound up in, in doing uh, my research through through uh, eastern europe through central and eastern europe and and fleeing from uh, boring vienna to interesting prague occasionally as, as well although i love both cities how interesting um, yeah, so uh, you know, congratulations to you on on this book. I wonder, and as a final question, and this is the last ninety seconds to two minutes, if you could plug any current projects that you might be working on, things that you might be writing and interested.
1: in. Well, you know, I'm 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 actually learning about what happens to a person after they write a book. Um, you know, I'm I'm right now I'm busy uh, trying to promote the book locally here in the Czech market. You know, um, you know, doing what I can possibly thinking about doing a second book for the Czech market uh, but uh, uh, sort of similar to what i'm doing here but more up-to-date you know modern take of the funny parts about this culture uh and um what, what i would really like to to draw your reader to your listeners attention to is my blog you know which you gave at the beginning of the of the thing and that's where i put where i'm what i'm doing at the moment and i'm Rebooting it and adding some new stories all the time, and thirty the thirtieth anniversary of the foundation of the Prague Post happens this October, and I'm going to excerpt the English chapter uh, oh, wow. of that chapter on the Prague Post for my blog. So look at it there, and I think that's you know I think that's going to be fun for readers who can't get the book now because it's in Czech, uh, but just to see what uh, you know what what might be in it.
0: F- fantastic, and and you will leave it to someone else to write the biography of Václav Klaus. <laughs> you
1: talk about this; it's very funny. I'm good. I'm good at inventing. I'm good at inventing characters, but I don't think I can do that one. You know, <laughs>
0: he's a tough soul. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's a, a very interesting guy. You know, I, I see it from the cultural detachment. I'm not so emotionally invested in the guy. So, so I, I see that his flaws and perhaps his good points, where many people here simply see his flaws. You know, but yeah, you know.
0: Well, well, thank you, and and I hope I hope our listeners uh, will, will look up www.markbakerprog.com. I've been speaking here today on New Books Network with our guest Mark Baker, the travel writer and American journalist, uh, and his book is called *Chas Promien*, Time of Changes. It's published by Albatross Books, twenty twenty one. Thank you, Mark, again for your time today and for such a lively interview. I really enjoyed it.
1: Oh, I did too. It's my pleasure.
0: And I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here at New Books Network. Until next time.